This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. First things first, we want to talk about agriculture because it was a focus of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when he had his daily address just about an hour ago. You heard it on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. And we want to find out how things are going in the agriculture sector because this is now planting season for fruits, for vegetables, for other crops. And the chair of the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Association, Bill George, joins us right now. Bill, how are things going? Well, I think things are moving forward. Uh, obviously, uh, Mother Nature keeps uh, keeps on going, and uh, we are uh, progressing through the season with our perennial uh, crops, like uh, the tree fruit crops and the vine crops. Um, and the growers are getting ready to uh, start planting their vegetable crops in the fields. So things are moving forward since we last spoke. Uh, we have uh, received uh, some of the migrant workers in the country which is good. We still are lagging behind uh, with the workers, uh, as well with some workers being in the 14-day quarantine. But uh, things are moving forward. Uh, lots of stress on the grower growers right now, but uh, things are moving forward. Okay, well, good to hear moving forward, but at the same time, you did mention the stress on the growers. What is causing that stress right now? Well, I think initially it obviously was getting the workers here, uh, which we've overcome that hurdle. Uh, but going forward through the growing season, nobody really knows uh, how uh, COVID is going to affect their operations. If you had, did have a potential outbreak on your operation and had to be shut down for 14 days, obviously uh, there's no crop that can be uh, unmaintained for 14 days. So that creates a, a lot of uncertainty for some of the growers that are just starting to plant. They they're 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 making decisions based on that, whether they should be planting uh, a full crop or not. Maybe uh, they have a 100-acre farm they're going to plant. Maybe they're only going to be planting 50 or 70 of those acres just to hedge the bet uh, if their labor force uh, doesn't come in or potentially you had a, an outbreak on your farm. Um, so there are real concerns the growers have, uh, real financial concerns uh, going forward. So that's what we're dealing with right now. We are talking right now about how things are going in the fruit and vegetable sector in Ontario with Bill George, chair of the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Association. Have any crops, Bill, been affected to a point where we can say, yes, they will have a lower yield than what they were hoping for? Certainly. Asparagus is uh, one of our earlier season crops uh, and just starting to be harvested, uh, I believe, this week. Uh, the indications coming out of the asparagus uh, association are the crop will be down 50 to 40 percent uh, this year just simply uh, because of the workforce not arriving on time and, and concerns around the workforce. So, yes, uh, so there's a certain example of uh, a specific example of uh, an, a commodity that's being uh, hurt by COVID. As well, uh, some greenhouse operations are having trouble finding enough workers to harvest the crops that are ready in the greenhouse. So, and what do we know about workers? Impact. I mean, we've heard that there are some workers that have been able to come across the border. We've heard not as many as are needed. What do we know about that particular situation going forward, Bill? Going forward, I think the issue is the, the countries, uh, certain countries, Jamaica has been very uh, uh, 
how would I say, responsive to get their workers here. The Mexican government has had some issues getting uh, the paperwork processed for the workers to travel. So I think we're going to see a bit of an issue uh, going forward with some Mexican workers uh, that were supposed to arrive in the next month or so, that there could be some issues there. So everybody's feeling the effects of COVID through uh, their country. So things aren't happening probably as quick as they should. So I think there's some of the reasons why their workforce won't be a, a full workforce won't be arriving and certain countries are not allowed allowing their, their workers to travel yet. So that's another uh, issue that we're facing. It obviously might be too early to see what the impact might be, but is anybody kind of suggesting what the impact might be or when we might know? Well, I think if you are listening to the announcement today, the, minister, uh, the prime minister uh, asked from the our, our federal association, Canadian Federation of Agriculture, was a two point six billion dollar ask, uh, and the announcement today was uh, far short of that at uh, two hundred fifty two million, I believe. And I, what I was encouraged about, I heard the the prime minister say say this is initial uh, funding that's coming forward. So those industries that were affected, uh, certainly pork and uh, and the dairy industry, are, are getting some funding. But we, as a whole edible horticulture industry, have to know that if we run into trouble uh, throughout the growing season, that the same supports will be there for uh, edible horticulture as well. So we are working with the federal government as well as provincial uh, government, Minister Hardiman, to try to develop some backstops for the edible horticulture industry if we do uh, if, the, if the need arises there may be some sectors that don't need it but uh, the ones that do we certainly hope uh, we can put in some financial backstops for the producers so they Bill, we wish you the best of luck and we hope thank that you, that anytime. can happen as well thanks so much for taking some time for us today anytime thank you Take care. Be safe. That is Bill George, chair of the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Association. So asparagus crop, that's at about 50%. And there are a lot of unknowns, but as Bill says, what are you going to do if you're a farmer? You you push forward, you march forward, and you do what you can with what you have, and we'll see how the yields look in a few months from now. What is it like to have COVID-19? We've heard so many people say it's unlike anything they've ever had before. Next... We're going to speak with someone who has it right now, who's doing his best to fight it off right now. Six months ago, we'd never heard of COVID-19. Three months ago, we were hearing things like coronavirus on a pretty regular basis, maybe a little bit about COVID-19. Now, we know a whole lot more about it. If you are someone who has contracted it, you know everything there is to know about it because you're experiencing it. But what is that like if you have managed to avoid it so far? We're about to find out. Brian Taylor was part of the 2014 OHL Champion Guelph Storm organization and joins us now from Michigan. Brian, thanks so much for taking some time for us. How are you? I'm uh, doing pretty good today, Mike. Thank you very much. And let me say at the outset, I've ad- admired your work over the years with uh, the Knights, uh, usually catching you uh, pre-game or post-game on my way in and out of London for a Storm hockey game. 
Well, hey, much appreciated. I hope that you can be in and out of London sometime in the the near future for a hockey game. I think we'd all kind of like that. You have COVID-19. How long have you had it? Well, it's a little difficult to say. I'm guessing at this point probably uh, the better portion of a little over two weeks. Uh, typically, the the period of uh, incubation is, they say officially, between 2 and 14 days. Um, but most people end up showing symptoms four or five days in. Um, mine is a little difficult to say because originally I, I started... Uh, having some symptoms which I simply dismissed as being a normal cold or upper respiratory infection because I didn't ha- really have any of the major markers at the time that the CDC said of COVID-19. And then it started getting a little, the term I put on it is squirrely. I would have a couple of uh, couple of bad days and then I'd have a good day and, and then maybe a couple couple bad days and and it just did not start fitting into a predictable pattern of any cold or flu or virus that I've ever known. And that's kind of when I got the clue that, well, I need to be tested maybe. So how long would that have lasted? How many days do you think it went with you kind of trying to figure out what was going on? Uh, It was the better portion of a week. And then you did get tested. What's the test like? Well, I did the typical swab test, the big long swab that you see. It was, uh, according to most accounts that you've heard, not comfortable. Um, mine was done at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, and I, it was quite, my nose was quite sore. Um, they do, at least on me, they did both nostrils, and I was quite sore for a few days afterwards, and actually I still had feeling like my nose had been probed up until that weekend following it. Isn't that wild? Okay, well, let's kind of talk about what days are like for you. You're at home right now. I'm at home, yes, doing uh, the typical two-week quarantine period uh, that is mandatory once you test positive. Okay, and in terms of... of what you're feeling would you call this mild would you call it somewhere between mild and something else where would it fit well i'm guessing from what i know and i've i've studied uh been studying it since long before i even suspected i had it or or got my diagnosis um i'm guessing probably about middle of the mild spectrum now keep in mind we're talking about quite a huge playing field when you when you use the term quote-unquote mild. I've talked to and heard of people who have mild anywhere from just barely a cough or maybe a low-grade fever all the way to people who have um, breathing issues to where they say when, it, when they breathe in, it feels like they're taking in shards of glass. And you would be somewhere on that spectrum, but not quite at the shards of glass. Correct. Correct. My breathing has really not been too compromised, other than feeling a little bit of chest congestion and, and, and pressure on my chest. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing somewhere probably mid-spectrum. 
We're talking with Brian Taylor, who right now has COVID-19, has been diagnosed with it, and is dealing with it. And you say it's probably been about two weeks. Now, Brian, we all try to compare things to times in our life when maybe we've had a really bad cold or a really bad flu and it wipes us out for a couple of days we can all think about what that is like how does this compare well this is so much different than anything i've ever experienced at at the risk of being redundant um it's not something i i tell you what i have a very healthy respect for this virus and and that's said from someone who has just a mild case of it because it's just so squirrely and unpredictable even within a day you know i mentioned about having good days and bad days and i vacillate between the two at at an unpredictable pattern even within the course of a day sometimes it can vary i can have a few good hours and then all of a sudden not so good and Typically, with any other normal kind of sickness, you know, you, you most often follow a predictable pattern. You feel yourself getting sick, and then you kind of continually decline till you bottom out and reach the valley, and then there's a gradual incline uh, back to health. But with this, I, at the most, I've had a couple of what I would call good, decent days where I'm actually feeling feeling good, that, and that's not to say symptom-free, it's just this, everything is kind of more minimal. Um, but uh, it, it's it's just very hard to predict, even from hour to hour, how you're going to feel. So I, I would really urge people to do whatever they can to avoid this virus and stay safe because it's nothing that you want to play with. Whew. Brian, how would you spend a lot of your days? Does it wipe you out to the point that you are in bed? Do you make sure that you get up and move? I try to get up and move because I have heard that's one of the things that you want to do in my recreational time. I'm a guitar player and songwriter, so I've been trying to do as I as I can some singing because I've heard using your lungs is, is uh, beneficial to the respiratory system. Um, so it, it really varies on how I feel from, as I said, hour to hour and day to day on, on the days that I feel good. I'm certainly trying to do the most that I can. I've had very few days where I've been sleeping or in bed the majority of the day. So I've been very fortunate in, in that regard. Um, probably most attributable to the fact that I'm probably mid spectrum on the mild case. We are talking with Brian Taylor, who just described it right there. He is midsection in terms of a mild case of COVID-19, and it sounds anything but mild. How How is the, the fear factor in all of this that, uh-oh, do you, do you go through days sometimes, or did you go through days where you think, oh, is this getting worse? Am I going to have to go to a hospital? Well, yeah, certainly that that is in the back of your mind, especially when you when you know that, most people that decline in this disease do so about two weeks in. That's, that's kind of the, the usual rate. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people don't realize when we see the, the numbers that pop daily is that the new 
we're, we're always looking at old data. We're always looking at uh, the rearview mirror because the people who become known cases typically have developed the symptoms the week prior, and the people who show up as, as uh, new deaths are people that genuinely got it uh, roughly two to three weeks ago because the normal pattern uh, from infection to death is like 17 to 21 days. Well, we wish you the best in recovering from this. Do you feel at all like, hey, things are getting better now and then the last few days have maybe been better than the next or the, the few days before that, or is it still kind of a you never know what this virus is going to give you on any given day? Uh, that's kind of the wild card, um, and I, I hesitantly say that I feel like maybe I'm, I'm uh, starting to get better because I've, uh, over the weekend, I strung together a couple days, Saturday, Sunday, I, I actually felt pretty good, uh, but then Sunday night, I kind of crashed, had a, had a relapse to the point where if I felt like my... Uh, my pulse oxy uh, numbers had gotten any any worse. They were the worst that they'd been on Sunday night. Um, I was going to consider going to emergency, and then since then I've had a had a couple of good days uh, after that. Uh, so I I really hope so, but like I said, it's so unpredictable. You just don't know. Brian, here's to stringing together a whole lot more good days. Thank you so much for describing what this has been like. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me on, and I, I hope it helps somebody. I, I think you've put a really solid perspective on what this is all about. Thanks again. Take care, Mike. That is Brian Taylor. He has COVID-19. Maybe on the, the mild side, the middle of the mild spectrum, as he described it, and yet, this is no picnic, to the point he's about two weeks in on Sunday night and is all of a sudden considering, hey, do I need to go to the hospital? That's why we stay distanced. That's why we stay apart. That's why this is different than anything else that we've been dealing with. It's what the scientists keep saying. It's what the health officials keep saying. And it's something we've got to keep in mind. Because if you go enough days and you don't have it, you didn't get it. You think, oh, what is this? I keep getting emails from people saying, yeah, yeah, coronavirus. Look at this. Okay, I look at it, but then I talk to somebody like Brian, and then I stop looking at that stuff. Murder hornets, two words that shouldn't go together. But in 2020, why not? Why not? You, you can't surprise any of us anymore. But let's find out a little bit more about what these things actually are because we have seen ladybugs overrun by a different kind of ladybug. And I think the regular old ladybugs that didn't bite us, I think they're mostly gone, aren't they? And then we saw yellow jackets affected, or maybe it was yellow jackets came in. A lot of things have been going on for a while in the old insect world, so let's kind of get to the bottom of this. Professor Graham Thompson is a biology professor who studies insect social behavior at Western University, and we are so lucky to have him with us right now. Professor Thompson, how you doing? 
I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? You know what? We're okay. We're we're getting through. Uh, but when somebody kind of says murder hornets and suggests that maybe they could wind their way here, uh, I think we need to know more about this. Can you tell us first off if murder hornets are maybe misnamed, maybe like the Gila monster or maybe like the Komodo dragon where their name, you know, makes them sound really scary, but in fact, they're just fuzzy little happy creatures. What do you think here? Yeah. You know, I got two takes on that. I think the name is fine. Like you, um, there's other insects that have bizarre names like this, like the assassin bug or the robber fly or killer bees or vampire moths and all kinds of stuff. These colorful names. And they just stick for whatever reason, because they in some way describe, even if it's like a caricature, what what someone's impression of them is. So they're, they're not really official names necessarily. Murder uh, Hornet is not an official name, but for whatever reason, it sticks and draws attention to it. So I think it's kind of colorful and playful, if as long as you're not actually afraid that this uh, insect is going to murder you. And I've been getting, um, I see on social media that some of my you know, insect colleagues, well, actually, they're not insects, they're humans that study insects, they're getting a little bit, uh, you know, blow, uh, blowing back a little bit at the at the name, because they think that it will cause undue fear, and that people may react and start to harm other insects that they think might be dangerous, and they're a little bit worried about that, but I'm okay with the name. Typically, around here, do we not see more bees and wasps than we do hornets or are hornets there and maybe we just don't recognize them yeah there's native hornets in canada and they're in the same sort of family as as the as paper wasps and yellow jackets that you mentioned earlier so they're around and they are a little bit bigger um than say a honeybee that people are familiar with seeing they're they're like four or five times bigger these murder hornets are by the way four or five times bigger than a a, than a say a honeybee so they're they're pretty um cool looking you know they, they look at quite vicious but they're, they're not here in, in the eastern part of the country they're just a handful of observations out on the west coast like in washington state and, and bc um but they're, they're native to another part of the world they're native to southeast asia so are they are are they nasty nasty things if, if you were to get stung by one of these is that going to be different than some other kind of hornet's sting yeah i think so it did but just by a matter of degree so I mean, are they nasty? They're, they're na- it would be nasty if you got stung by one, but you would have to really go out of your way or be unlucky for that to happen. So they're not after humans, and they're not gonna. Their name doesn't come because they kill humans, but rather they they do prey upon other large insects, including honeybees. So if they're if they're murderous at all, they they would be murdering honeybees. Um, there are some interesting videos on YouTube. I've not been stung by one, but that uh, there's some. Some people out there that like to do this, they get stung by insects on purpose and just to record their reactions and in a sensational way. And so, oh, YouTube. Yeah, I know. Eh? And so, in fact, there's there's one person who, who has a scale, a pain scale, and he ranks the insects he's been stung by. But anyway, um, by all accounts, the, the murder hornet is pretty potent sting um, with its venom and stuff, and it can cause a local allergic reaction and and takes a few days for it to go down. So I would not want to be stung by one. 
We are talking with Professor Graham Thompson, biology professor who studies insect social behavior at Western University, and we're learning about murder hornets. 2020, filled with all kinds of things, a pandemic, and now we get this name jumping out at us. But as Professor Thompson has pointed out, these things typically are out on the West Coast. There's no sign of them progressing eastward, but they would be a threat, it sounds like, potentially to bees. Bees don't need another threat right now, do they? Right. So bees, um, you guys would know that the bees have got a long list of stressors that have kind of been bothering them for the last decade or so. And here in, uh, in southern Ontario, the bees are, have their own enemies. There's pathogens and parasites and viruses and, and pesticides and things that afflict them. So even though this um, hornet has evolved, not around here, but elsewhere, to attack bees, um, they're not really established here and or even on the West Coast where they've been found. But if they did, let's say that they were, you know, an invasive insect and they actually did gain a foothold, then beekeepers out there would need to be, um, you know, on the lookout for them, I suppose. And it is actually beekeepers that made the initial observations and have been dutifully reporting them and being active in, in getting rid of them and stuff. So beekeepers have... Uh, have uh, an interest in in keeping an eye on them, and and they'll probably be our first line of defense. They're they're used to working with um, social insects and stinging insects anyway. We're talking with Professor Graham Thompson from Western University. As a final question, what could cause these particular murder hornets to migrate our way? Um, well, there's no indication that they they have come this way, like to Ontario yet, but. The fact that they've been seen in on the West Coast in multiple years, they were originally seen late last year and again now this year, and in a couple different areas, it suggests that they're either being, you know, continually, repeatedly uh, reintroduced or that they've already gained a foothold there and that their numbers are increasing to a level where we're now starting to notice them. But um, they do have uh, some limits, like they can't, um, they, they like it where it's a bit warm and they, they're in soil of a particular type and um, they forage on sap from particular plants and trees. And so all of these things will kind of limit their dispersal. And so they may not even be able to come this far where we are. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ha- suggest to roll up your windows uh, just yet or anything like that. <laughs> okay, good. Good. We don't need. And I did just get an email from Mark at Mike at nine eighty cfplca asking, "How do we identify one? Is there is there a specific look to them?" Yeah, they're they're pretty spectacular looking. It's hard to describe over a over a call, but you, you could Google. There's a lot of images circulating right now. Um, they're first of all, they're very big. All right, so um, they're four or five centimeters. Um, the, the, if you saw one, you, you know it'd be getting close to the size of a hummingbird or something. They're pretty heavy insect. And they they got bright orange warning coloration, and they look you know um, pretty cool like the like a, a exaggerated wasp you know and it has really big uh, orange mandibles out front and stuff so um, I, I wouldn't basically be looking for them though or or be fearing for them I I don't think that there's any danger um, to being stung or anything like that around here. Well, it grabs the attention when somebody calls out 
the name Murder Hornets, as Craig Needle said earlier today. Make a great minor league baseball team name. Maybe yeah, we'll get that would. someday, and maybe we won't have to deal with these, at least in these parts, anytime soon. Professor Thompson, thanks so much for getting our mind off COVID-19 just uh, just a little bit, even if it is to talk about Murder Hornets. <laughs> hey, no, hey, no problem. It was fun. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Bye. That is Professor Graham Thompson. He's a professor of biology at Western University as we talk about murder hornets. So don't fear them, but definitely Google them because he's right. I mean, you've, you've got people who have captured these things between their thumb and forefinger. And and I don't know how big this, this guy is, but if you want to picture your thumbnail... Uh, the head of the thing is probably half the size of your thumbnail. I mean, these are this is a big thing. You would notice this particular thing. Here's hoping that they don't stress out the honeybees too much out west. Need those bees. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.